Um, what would you say are some of the greatest challenges or not the greatest, but one of the most common challenges that you see in the work that you do? Who um, with, with, with athletes or, or sports? Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely the culture of the sport. Oh yeah. Um, you know, we have diet culture and then we have diet culture in fitness culture, <laughs> yeah. like the layer on the layer. Mm. Um, and it's, you know, well, when I run with my running friends, all they talk about is da, 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 or my coach mentioned a race weight or, I mean, it's so pervasive, you know, we can't get away from it no matter where we turn. Like we can't even just go for a run peacefully. Um, even, you know, I listen to podcasts when I run and I listen to a few podcasts about running, like how meta I, and I like sometimes will be on a run and like the conversation that I'm listening oh. to starts to become about weight. And I'm like, no, this is my safe <laughs> space. Like get out of here, you know? Um, but that's on me. Like I, I know that I'm listening to a podcast about running, which means that at some point someone's going to yep. say something. Yep. Um, so I, yeah. You're listening to the one small bite podcast with me, your host, David Roscoe. For over a decade, I have built a successful nutrition practice helping thousands of people thrive, nourish their life, and break the cycle of crazy diets. We will take one small bite at a time to transform your health and develop a positive relationship to food. So let's chop the diet mentality, fuel your body, and nourish your soul. Okay, are you ready? Let's do this. Hola a todos. Welcome to the One Small Bite Podcast. I'm your host, David Orozco. And today I'm really excited because you just heard from Heather Kaplan, and she is an anti-diet, weight-inclusive registered dietitian. She hosts the podcast, RD Real Talk, covering a range of topics related to anti-diet, weight-inclusive work. So we're going to talk all things sports nutrition. We're going to talk a little bit about her journey and how she got into the weight-inclusive space. We're going to dismantle diet culture within fitness. And amounting that, we're going to talk about the importance types of hunger. We're going to also listen to how she talks us about making food appetizing and beneficial for athletes and fitness people. We're going to talk about the two dreaded words, weight and loss within athletics and sports. We'll talk about sustainable behavior. And she's going to give us some great uh, challenges and successes that she's had with the clients that she works with. And one nice, great tip at the very end that we can take a good small bite out of, right? Um, well, I want to just let you know that she specializes in disordered eating and bringing an intuitive eating to athletes and parents. She's the founder of Weight Inclusive Nutrition and Dietetics. It's also known as WIND. She is co-founder of the Lane 9 Project, a virtual community for athletes experiencing hypothalamic amenorrhea. Her work has been featured on the Today Show, Super Cool, and in the Washington Post, Outside Magazine, Eating Well, and Runner's World. You can find her online at heatherkaplan.com, or you can hang out with her on Instagram at heatherdcrd, where, by the way, she's keeping it real about parenting three kids under four, training for an X-race, and probably, like me, not planning a meal. So... <laughs> All right, but you know what? Let's get started with the interview. All right, here we go. Hey, Heather, welcome to the One Small Bite podcast. How are you? I'm doing great, David. How are you? 
doing well. Thank you so much for being a guest on the show today. I'm really excited to get started. We've got some great things to talk about. I would love for people to get to, to know you a little bit. Um, I know I'm going to ask for your bio and put it in our show notes and stuff, but I'd love for people just to kind of hear your journey. How did you get to this weight-inclusive, intuitive eating space? Yeah. So I have been a dietitian now for about 12 years and year one, I was like, this doesn't feel right. I, um, came into nutrition with a, a, you know, quote unquote passion for healthy eating and health, uh, that came from a very disordered place and, you know, can see very clearly in hindsight, I was struggling quite a bit in college with disordered eating, which I think I kind of knew at the time, but then, um, I mentioned to an advisor, you know, I, I think about nutrition a lot and I'm really interested in like health magazines and blah, blah, blah. And she was like, oh, well you can major in nutrition here, which I had known because, uh, I knew that that was an option for that school. And so, you know, that was like, well, now I'm doing this and that, <laughs> that feels right. Um, but even as I went through my studies, I felt like there, I just was so hyper aware of how similar our nutrition education education was for like how to client or how to counsel clients and how to help folks lose weight and how to approach medical nutrition therapy. Like all, all of those things felt so similar to what I did in a really disordered space. And so even though I was still sort of in that space, I already had this awareness of like, this doesn't feel right because what I'm doing feels kind of crappy and it's actually negatively <laughs> impacting my health. And of course, like my experience is just one. And so I, I definitely can see that, but there just felt like too much overlap for me. And as I got into the profession and started thinking about what I wanted to do, I gravitated towards sports nutrition because for me, it felt, um, one, it aligned with my interests as a person outside of being a dietitian. And two, it felt like I can see how nutrition is helpful in this space and hopefully not harmful. And so that, you know, helped me kind of get into dietetics in a way that felt like I could sustain it. <laughs> um, even though I did a lot of different jobs along the way. And then I eventually found myself at a startup in 2015 and I was the only dietitian on the team. And by that point I was like really fed up with all of it. And <laughs> I was like, really, I was ready to let my credential lapse. I was like, I just don't think this is the right space for me, but I found the startup and interviewed for the job and they were looking for a dietitian. So I'm like, oh, okay, I gotta, I guess I gotta fill out my learning plan and like, you know, keep this going. So I don't ever have to take that test again. Um, and through that experience, long story short, I was able to work with some dietitians who were practicing in a non-diet way. And I was really drawn to that. And by that point, I was like, I can't keep doing anything that's focused on weight and that feels weight centric because it just feels really harmful. And so I found these dietitians who had a language that I didn't within dietetics. And I was really interested and I started digging into, um, I eventually found the food psych podcast, which is like the gateway for so yeah. many. Right, Christy, she's done <laughs> yeah. it a lot for all of us. Thank yeah. you, Christy. Yeah. <laughs> right? And of course, like she's using language around the intuitive eating book and help at every size. And it's like, well, what are these things? So, um, yeah, then it was a slippery slope into the non-diet weight inclusive space. And, um, that's how I've been practicing ever since. Have you, I know that you and I have talked about this, but have you felt, um, sort of wax and wane between, I know I did, uh, I know that you heard that from me. Did you ever have that wax and wane between the non-diet and the diet space? 
I didn't, honestly. Oh, good for you. oh you're so lucky. <laughs> I know. I feel like that made my process a little bit easier. But again, because I came from just one like very small, unique lived experience of my own, I could see how harmful that can be. Um, and in hindsight, I think that I met a lot of clinical criteria for an eating disorder at a certain point in my life. So there is that lived experience. I try not to like project that too much onto what I'm doing. You know, like I have a certain experience within diet culture, but that's not everyone's experience. So I do try to remain a lot more curious about that now than I probably did in the early days, but because I had just seen and actually lived that harm. And then I also saw it so much with my clients, like so many of the people that I worked with over the years, I'd done a lot of counseling in my career, like in my jobs and then also in a side uh, private practice and then also in my own private practice. Now, okay. most of my career has been counseling and I just could feel so much resistance and people not wanting to talk to the dietitian and not really <laughs> able to like stick to a lot of things. So I feel like when I came into this space, I just was like, <sighs> finally, like we, we can do this in a way that's not harmful and we can, you know, actually be health promoting without just focusing so intently on weight as an outcome. Mm -hmm. Um, so it just felt really refreshing for me. Um, and I, yeah, I mean, I've tried to be a little more curious about again, like different lived experiences in those spaces as I've gone into the work more deeply, but, um, yeah, I, I didn't really wax. <laughs> I would say probably the only ways in which I did that, because I was just talking on my own podcast about this recently. Um, you know, my, my show has been around for five years. So you hear me learn through the episodes. Like if you oh, went back yeah, to like learning, episode yeah. one, like, Oh God, <laughs> I, know. So I, I certainly like, don't mean to imply that like from the very beginning of my non-diet work, I was doing all the things that I do now. That's not true, but I never really thought like, mm, this doesn't seem right. It just was like, Oh, okay. Weight inclusive spaces exist. And this feels so much better to me. Um, and there seems to be a lot more to this than what I was doing before. Yeah. I'm going to touch a little bit on that. Cause I think that that's really interesting. I do see how wonderful the, um, weight inclusive space has opened up, but I do recognize that we are still a bit of a sliver compared to the behemoth that diet culture is. Mm -hmm. Um, what do you think will take to see that change where we see maybe more of a, at least a 60, 40 balance, you know, yeah. where we're seeing a little bit more of that inclusive space. What do you think? Um, I mean, I think first we have to call out like why diet culture is a behemoth. I mean, a $72 billion industry, which that's, that statistic is maybe mm -hmm. even a few years old. Um, I think it's actually really hard for us as humans to conceptualize billions, like not just 1 billion, but 72 billion, there's so much power in diet culture and there's white supremacy. There's a ton of money. There are really oppressive systems and um, yeah, we're a sliver <laughs> compared to that, you know? So I think there's calling out those powers I think is important so that, you know, I mean, that can be super overwhelming, but it's, it's the reality that we have right now. Um, and then I think that, you know, there has been such a huge shift towards weight inclusive spaces, mindsets, resources, et cetera. Um, and what would it take to make that bigger or more like broadly appealing? I think it still comes down to this like deep association we have with weight and health. And 
how hard that is to break for some people. I mean, I'm even just this week had an interesting interaction with a more weight focused practitioner who said, well, I have seen in the research that haze aligned interventions produce similar outcomes to weight management interventions. So how can we use haze in weight management? And I'm like, <laughs> when I you, don't under like what? Yeah. When you were saying that, I was like, oh, she's getting it. And I'm like, no, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> no, not at all. Well, you know, um, that's what I did. That's what I meant about me waxing yeah, and Wayne. I thought yeah. that way too. When I first became certified in duty counselor, I thought, oh, I wonder if I can use, uh, um, targeting your hunger and your satiety clues with helping people lose weight. Right. Like, I, I don't think that most people, practitioners definitely included realize how deeply ingrained that weight health belief system is to, to even see the research that exists now that haze aligned interventions produce the same, or maybe even better health outcomes than weight management interventions and not be able to let go of weight management. It's like, oh, well, no, we should just take that and apply it to weight management. Like what? (laughs) Like you're completely missing the point. Oh man. So I don't have a good answer to your question at all, but (laughs) I, I appreciate it as a brain exercise (laughs) to keep thinking about it. Yeah. I think that we, uh, we, uh, we definitely have a analogy I can use or metaphor. I can use a pushing a boulder up the mountain approach with this. Mm -hmm. I do know that it's really, really tough. I do want to say that there are several people out there that have done a good body of research. Tracy Tilka, we know, Mm -hmm. um, Jeffrey hunger, um, Kendra Sonneville. Yes. Um, uh, Lindo bacon and, Mm -hmm. um, Afromore, I forgot her. Lucy. Lucy, Yeah. Lucy Lucy Afromore, Janet Um, Tamiyama. I mean, yeah. yeah. The list is now growing, which is phenomenal. I just want to let people know that the research is out there. So for people to say, well, what's the research on this? Okay. Well, let me show you. (laughs) Yeah, But even, even in that space, this is incredibly discouraging, but it's true. The money is not in weight inclusive research. The money is in weight management. I mean, I've heard from some of those researchers we just listed, like it's really hard to get funding for a study that does not focus on weight loss. You know, I I just, I just did a recording uh, for the podcast a little while ago on bariatric surgery and the challenges in -hmm. the industry and how much it's just a money-making machine and the powers would be both from pharmaceutical as well as uh, medical device companies is so strong and, you know, uh, hospitals are making a killing with the amount of surgeries that they perform. I think it's something like, um, 200 surgeries in one hospital, uh, a year or 200, 300, uh, surgeries in a hospital a year. And, Mm. and surgeons are required to meet a certain quota too. Oh no. Oh man. Yeah. I don't know. That doesn't surprise me at all. That's like, oh, that's so frustrating and mm-hmm. disturbing. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so that's, mm-hmm. I mean, I, again, I don't mean to sound discouraging. Like we're up against a lot of power and a, an amount of money that we can't even really comprehend. It's like trying to understand space. Like, I don't want it's what, like it never ends. What? I don't yeah. know. How? Yeah. What? Yeah. <laughs> um, so it kind of makes your head spin. And of course, that's not any reason to like 
let our guard down or slow down in the work. Like it's, I think all the more reason to kind of keep going and, um, support who we can in this space. But yeah, it feels, it feels very much like a boulder up the mountain, maybe even like boulder up a like negative slope cliff or yes. something. It's like <laughs> right. This, uh, this like geometry isn't even working or right. physics or whatever, you know, right. A straight up, a straight up arrow versus yeah. a hill. Like, an angle doesn't give it any justice yeah. yeah like rock climb while you have a yeah while you're your hanging head. yeah <laughs> <laughs> okay. um, um well you bring up something that i think thought about two things one was this these suppressive systems and i i think that the work that we do is very about um social justice i think that we a lot of what we're doing really ties into uh, yeah, white supremacies, patriarchy, a lot of the systems that are instilled at such a subconscious and unconscious level that we are not aware of what is happening in many regards. We're not, we're blinded right. and it's difficult for us to even see. That's why it's very, very difficult to, to see what diet culture would do. And this is the second part. I also see how diet culture does not stop with just diet approaches. Uh, I hate what they're doing now where they're hearing a lot of us speak. Mm -hmm. uh, I think you mentioned this on your podcast, right? Where yeah. they're hiring us to talk about uh, intuitive eating, weight inclusive ways, and then using that language in selling their products. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that. Yeah. yeah. I, so this is going to be on my show soon. Uh, it's not published yet as we're talking, but I had a conversation recently where we talked through that. And my perspective on that is like, I say that it feels like diet culture's last breath. I know that it's not because again, we're looking at like such a massive, like incomprehensible system of power that it, it's not its last breath, but it's, it's such an act of desperation in my mind. Like you're trying so hard to show up as the first Google search for intuitive eating or anti-diet. Like it's that desperate. Mm -hmm. And as we were talking about on the conversation we had for my show, like that bait and switch doesn't work for people. Yeah. They see, yes. they see it eventually. Right. And then they're just pissed because they gave you money and you didn't offer what you said you were offering. So yes. it's a terrible customer service tactic um, in terms of like user experience, but it's also just it just feels really desperate to me. And it feels I, like we see that our, our typical approach, you know, our diet culture marketing 101 isn't really working anymore. What else can we do? Yeah. I've seen clients. I mean, I've literally had clients tell me, well, uh, I feel like this is not what I came here to do. And what we're doing now is very different. Why didn't you give me this approach before? And so that you can hear, Hey, what, this was very baity. What are you doing? Right. Uh, yeah. Right. Right. Oh, that felt so yucky. And, and I didn't mean to do it on purpose. It was just like, I was scared and yeah. But anyway, yeah. I think that that's really important to bring out. Um, all right, let's switch gears here a little bit. I'd love to hear a little bit more about what you do in your practice. I know you've got that phenomenal podcast where Thank you're you. helping a lot of people, um, let's talk a little bit about what the podcast is and then what you do in your practice. Yeah. So the podcast is already real talk and I created the show almost exactly five years ago. Congratulations. Um, thank you. At the same time that I opened my business, which is a lot of things and private practice is part of it. Um, 
mostly because I was feeling pretty uh, isolated in you know, starting a business and working by myself and I'm an introvert, so I love it mostly, <laughs> but, um, you know, spending a lot of days by myself and I'd gone from working very closely with a tight knit team on a startup and it, within a startup company and culture, and then went to like, now it's just me. And I'm just always talking to myself. Yeah. <laughs> I think thanks to myself. So mostly it was like, well, I'll just create this thing that I think on podcasts, you have conversations. I think that's what people do. So then I'll just have conversations with other people. That's basically what it was. So, um, so I started that and it has evolved a lot over the years. I mean, those early episodes would probably sound totally foreign to some people. Yeah, mine um, do too. I don't even want to go back and listen to it, but, um, so that the podcast exists to have these conversations for me to be able to connect with providers and to kind of have an excuse to sit down for an hour and chat about all the non-diet things. Um, and then my private practice also, um, started five years ago and I had been doing that on the side for a little while to kind of be able to fuel my own interests in nutrition in a way that sometimes my jobs were not doing. Mm. Um, so I worked a lot in the sports nutrition space. I'm a runner myself. I love running. I love the mm. community. I love the sport. I love races, all, all the things. Um, so I had been working with runners in a private practice for a while and, um, primarily working with, women, um, women identifying people who were struggling a little bit with dieting, disordered eating, under fueling and wanting to do things that they really enjoy, but found that the way they were eating wasn't really supporting that. And they didn't know what to do. So mm, that's mostly sure. my clientele to the day, to this day. Um, and that's also how it started. So yeah, that's what I do. You tell me a little bit more about maybe like the day to day that you're working with clients. What kind of clients are you typically seeing and mm -hmm. uh, how often do you see them? And are they mainly sports runners or sport uh, clients? Yeah, I love this question because I'm, I'm curious and nosy by nature. So yeah, I'm like, oh, what, well, what does your day look like? Yes, um, yes. So I, I actually just took a year off of seeing clients. A little side mm -hmm. note about my life is... I've had three kids in four years. So, uh, a lot. yeah, it's a lot. Our third was a surprise and, um, definitely like took some processing and I, between that and the pandemic, I just didn't have the emotional space to be working with clients anymore. A lot of the work I do is in the disordered eating borderline eating disorder work. And, um, I just found that I wasn't really showing up for my clients in the way that I wanted to. Yep. And I had an associate dietitian working with me at the time. So she was able to keep the private practice side of things alive. And I'm very grateful to her for that. Thank you, Taryn. Um, so I did take a year off of seeing clients and I'm just getting back into it. And the boundary that has always been really helpful for me is to keep it to one day a week. Um, I've experimented with so many things. <laughs> and, um, before I had my second, I was seeing clients two days a week. And for me, like a max client load is four clients a day. Um, so right now it's really small and that's how I really like it. And I have one day where I focus on that. Um, I'm a bit of a like shiny object person in my business. So I have like the podcast and I have clients. You're an have... entrepreneur. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's hard. I feel like I the way that I've done things, my brain can feel pulled in like eight different directions on one day. And I oh, can't, yeah. I can't do that anymore. So yeah, for me in the private practice, it's um, primarily working with athletes or people who are active um, on various levels from like collegiate to sub elite to like me, I go for a run when I can, you know, mm -hmm. um, and primarily history of chronic eating or chronic dieting or eating disorder, maybe both. And 
just healing all of, you know, relationship to food, relationship to exercise. And what does that look like? Um, how do you integrate the weight inclusive eating, intuitive eating and Hayes approach in sports nutrition and with the clients that you, the athletes and the clients that you work yeah. with? Um, I would imagine that they're not coming to see you to lose weight, although <laughs> yeah, I do know that weight is their presence, but yeah. talk us through a little bit of that. What do you yeah. see and how are you helping them with that weight inclusive world? Yeah, there certainly are a good number of folks who have come to me saying, you know, I want to reach a, a race weight, which is a term thrown around in the running world. If you're familiar, mm -hmm, um, basically yeah, trying to kind of manipulate our body to be quote unquote faster for a race and then, you know, do whatever you want after that. And so a lot of people do still have that mindset. You know, we have folks who are interested and cure like non-diet curious, if you will. And, still use a lot of diet culture language because that's all we know, right? Like that's the, the vernacular that we have. And so, um, when I think about intuitive eating as it aligns with sports nutrition, it, the challenges are, um, using a lot of practical nutrition, which is a term that Evelyn and Elise, the authors of intuitive eating bring up in the book, right? We have, physical hunger, we have emotional hunger, we have taste hunger, and we have practical hunger. And so I use practical hunger a whole lot in my practice. Um, if you're someone who wakes up and wants to go running at six in the morning, that's the time that works for you. And when you want to be out there, et cetera, you may not be hungry when you wake up at 5.15 or 5.30, but do we still eat before a workout? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. <laughs> so, and then we also have, you know, exercise, uh, like the hormones that we have from exercise, stress hormones are sometimes appetite suppressants. Some people are more sensitive, sensitive to that than others. So we talk through, do you feel like you have an appetite after a workout or after a race? And if you don't, what can we do that is appetizing enough that you'll know you're, you will eat it or drink it. And we can get those nutrients back in. So with athletes who are training or who have goals with their activity or their sport of choice, um, especially with collegiate or sub elite athletes. It's a lot of that. It's a lot of, let's have a gentle plan that we can be flexible with. Let's have gentle guidelines that we can be flexible with, um, and still bring in a lot of that intuitive eating non-diet language, uh, and just mm. layer it over what we know about sports nutrition without making sports nutrition feel like a diet. How do you maneuver if they do, you mentioned this a little while ago, if they do want to, if they are including weight loss, if I want to get to that running weight, or yeah. I've heard this from rock climbers, um, mm -hmm. the weight to strength ratio. Yeah. <laughs> How do you maneuver around that? Yeah. In the yeah well, space? I'll be honest and say that I'm sure quite a few clients could attest to this. Like sometimes it's not a good fit and they don't end up, you know, staying in this space and that's okay. Yep, um, I had that too. Yeah. That's like, <laughs> just want to be honest. Um, and then there's a lot of folks again, who use that language because it's what they know. And then I will have a discovery call or we'll email back and forth a little bit because I'm really honest. I say, I don't focus on weight in my practice. That's not to say we can't talk about it. That's not to say it's completely off the table as a, a counseling subject, but I'm not going to promise that you'll lose weight and we don't focus on it as an outcome. That's my approach. How does that feel for you? And more often than not, it's, oh, that sounds really refreshing. Yeah, I hear that too. I'm so glad okay, that you said that. Okay, great. Yeah. 
<laughs> I'm so glad, you know? Um, and then there's, there's the clients who maybe have worked with me before, or they heard me speak at a retreat or a running store or a workshop. Um, and it takes quite a while for that to simmer. You know, I've had people who literally years later are like, I heard you speak at Potomac river running in DC. And uh, I want to work with you. I'm like, that was three years ago, <laughs> you know, like it yeah. simmers for a while. Yeah. Um, and then I think kind of the third pillar is, or third bucket, I guess, is folks who like know me well enough or trust the process enough that they're going to stick it out, even though there is still a lot of that weight centric thinking in their mind. Um, and we just work through that together. However, is meaningful for them, you know, like, I try to think a lot about past experiences with weight changes. So mm, I have good. some clients where I'll, they have said, you know, like, oh, I just did this and this and I lost X amount of pounds. Yeah. It just worked for me. And I'll say, okay, so your lived experience is that you notice when you make, I don't know, whatever changes, you do notice that your body changes. That's not true for everyone. Like, I mm -hmm. think it's important to say that, like, it has been true for you. Mm -hmm. It's not always true for everyone, but you've noticed it's true for you. So I can see how that feels enticing. You know, mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. you've had quote unquote success with it in the past. And then we talk through like, well, did that weight feel sustainable for you? Did those behaviors feel sustainable? Like, why are we not in that place anymore? Maybe because it wasn't sustainable, you know, yeah. <laughs> maybe mm -hmm. that's not where your body wanted to be. Um, so there's, there's definitely some working through that as well. You literally described every single one of those pillars <laughs> I've, I've gone through with clients Yeah, I just yeah. recently had a client last week or the week before last had a discovery call with him. And usually my discovery calls are 15, 20 minutes. This went on for 45 and oh, no. yeah, I'm like, Oh, this is like a consult. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's all right. It's okay. If I can get the workers, because look, I don't want to work with you because I've been there. I've done this. Look, I know that if I try to fool you with, Oh yeah, you'll have some weight loss then in, I'm going to be burning you and burning me and it's just not going to be a good relationship. And right. so I'd rather lose you now than lose you later. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that's how kind of, that's pretty much where we we left off. Look, you're doing all of these things. Uh, maybe you and I right now are just not the place. And you know what? If you ever want to have another conversation with me or you want to come back, feel free. I'm here. I'm, you know, I'm yeah. happy to chat a few minutes with you and see if now is a good time to work, or maybe you do want to come and uh, attempt the kind of work that I'm doing. And that mm -hmm. felt so much better. It felt so freeing at the same time. I felt, Oh my gosh, I need to get more clients on my, my clinicians roster. But, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but you know, I know that, you know, what you lose now you gain from later. So right. Right. Yeah. That so space is then open for someone who does feel ready yeah. and is looking for this approach. Yeah. 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 That's fantastic. Um, what would you say are some of the greatest challenges or not the greatest, but one of the most common challenges that you see in the work that you do Ooh, um, with, with, with athletes or, or sports? Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely the culture of the sport. Oh yeah. Um, you know, we have diet culture and then we have diet culture in fitness culture, <laughs> yeah. like the layer on the layer. Mm. Um, and it's, you know, well, when I run with my running friends, all they talk about is da, 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 or my coach mentioned a race weight or, I mean, it's so pervasive, you know, we can't get away from it no matter where we turn. Like we can't even just go for a run peacefully. Um, even, you know, I listen to podcasts when I run and I listen to a few podcasts about running, like how meta I, and I like, 
sometimes we'll be on a run and like the conversation that I'm listening to starts to become about weight. And I'm like, no, this is my safe (laughs) space. Like get out of here, you know? Um, but that's on me. Like I, I know that I'm listening to a podcast about running, which means that at some point someone's going to say something. Um, so I, yeah, the biggest challenge for me is definitely, and I, you know, I think this is true whatever context you put nine diet work into, whether that's like family belief systems, religious belief systems, Mm -hmm. you know, my work culture is such that whatever, but the running community, which is primarily where I work triathlon running, um, hiking, climbing, and those are all part of fitness culture. Mm -hmm. Um, the elite level of the sport is often athletes who look a certain way and got to that echelon of the sport. And therefore the trickle down effect is that even folks who do it recreationally, and I don't want to say just do it recreationally, like it's for a lot of us, it's a big part of our life and it means a lot to us, but that's still the only representation we see in the sport. And so then it kind of just, you know, it's like inception. It's like, oh, well then for me to be better at the sport, I need to look that way or I need to strive mm-hmm. to be that way. Um, so that's, that's definitely a challenge in the work. It's interesting that you're saying that I think of something else that goes along that line. And that is as we age forties um, and fifties, I also see one other challenge. And I don't know if you see this too, but they're thinking people at that age that they can get back to whatever <laughs> that weight or fitness level at their twenties or thirties. Do you see yeah. that as well? I think one of the, biggest disservices that we are done as humans is in our health education. It is never mentioned that it's normal for your body to change. Right. That's beautiful. I mean, I, in my early thirties, right after my first kid was born, I started working in a college, uh, university health clinic Mm -hmm. and I was the only dietitian. It was very part-time and I was mostly supposed to be doing eating disorder triage, but then I kind of became a catch-all for, the nurses and practitioners there who were like, Oh, we have a dietitian here now, like high cholesterol, high blood pressure, like yeah. weight management. You know, I got everything, uh, which was actually kind of fun because my private practice has been so specific for a while, but I, the number of times that I tried to help college students understand that it was normal for their body to be growing and changing between the ages of 18 and 22 to 24, 25, like the number of times I said, we are not biologically adults until <laughs> like, I just, and I didn't know that as a college student, I, I think that either. our mindset is like, I'm legally an adult at 18, right? which means I'm biologically an adult at 18. And those right. are two very different things, you know, yeah. like mentally and biologically, no, you are not. Um, and yeah, I think that just again, like not understanding that, not ever hearing it, we have, you know, women in their forties or fifties going through menopause and feeling so uncomfortable with their bodies changing. We have normal aging processes. Like all of it is normal. It's expected. That's what our bodies do, but we never receive that message. And so between like that huge hole in our general health education and then diet culture filling in, it's like, what do I do with this? And Instead of just like, well, well, of course my body's changing, you know, it's yeah. just like, well, of course it is. Yeah. All right. Well, on the opposite end, what do you see as some of the successes? What are the journeys that they end up doing with the work that you do with them? Yeah. I think the brain space that people get back oh, that's beautiful feels invaluable. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, wow, I can actually 
be more present with my kids or my friends or both. Um, you know, I can go for a run without it just being a way to try to manipulate my body. And then it's so much more enjoyable and it's more Mm. fun. You know, um, I can go to a restaurant and not spend the whole time like intensely analyzing the menu for what's healthy instead of paying attention to the conversation that's happening at the table. You know, um, I think just the amount of time that we spend thinking about food and quote unquote health, when we're really stuck in a diet mindset, um, we don't realize like how, how much energy and brain space it's taking up. So for me, that's a really big win with clients. And then just when they notice like how flexible they can be, Mm. you know, which allows for so much more satisfaction and pleasure and joy and, um, just like actual presence in their life because they're not again, like hyper-focused on food and diet and health. I think you, if I can summarize both, one is that brain space. The other one is that flexibility. They both, to me, they kind of funneled into joy or enjoyment, you know? Mm-hmm. And I love yeah. that you brought that in there as well, because you're right. It's gosh, living in that rigidity of what to eat, how to eat and how to manipulate your body on some form of physical activity. It's just oh, also so consuming and so mm-hmm. painful in many regards. So thank you for yeah. saying that. That's really, really nice. Um, yeah. What would be one small bite that you think listeners can take away from maybe for their uh, movement and for, or for their athleticism? Yeah. Uh, the, the thing that's coming to mind for me is like, think about what makes it fun. <laughs> um, so, you know, I think with a lot of things in terms of like our day-to-day behaviors and patterns and habits, like if they're not fun, they're probably pretty draining (laughs) and we're probably not doing them for the quote unquote right reasons, which is totally subjective to whatever feels right to you. Um, but I think about, you know, spaces that my clients have been in where they're running for a certain reason. And a lot of it has to do with body manipulation, weight control, Mm -hmm. um, or even just like just the goal of getting faster or improving. Like, I think that can be fun, but when it's taken to an extreme because of our diet culture conditioning, it stops being fun, Yeah, you know? And then it's like, well, then what, what's the point of any of it? Like, if we're not enjoying it, why, why do it? You know? And I think that's also where we see folks realize so much of like dieting and kind of fitness culture behaviors are not sustainable because they're not fun. You know, yeah. like they don't find joy in them in any way. And my God, like, what do we need more of right now? <laughs> we need a lot of things, but if you can find like small sources of things that just feel like freeing and refreshing and joyful, like that's, that's going to go a long way. I think of those stories or movies, uh, Andre Agassi or, ice skaters or skiers that are just in this, I hate life world. And it's Mm. like, they're, they're just going through the motions because that's all they know is how to be superstars and it's just killing them up inside, you know? So I love that you bring that. That's one small thing that you can do. And I, I think just, and I think you might agree with me, but correct me if I'm wrong. You're not saying that it has to be fun every single moment that you're doing. Oh gosh. Yeah. No. Right. Okay. No. See, but that's like, I think that's, you're not saying that either, but I think people like translate it to that. Right. So then again, that's where like some of our diet culture conditioning comes in. Like, first of all, we think like it shouldn't be fun. It should feel disciplined and structured and rigid. And that means we're doing it right. And then if it's too fun, 
we're probably doing something wrong. You know? <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Like, oh man, I think I screwed this up. Yeah. Um, I think it's just to me, so much of this work, like personally and for my clients is being aware of like what makes sense for you. Right. Mm-hmm. Like we, the diet culture conditioning is such that we, we feel like we all have to fit into this very tiny box we're completely ignoring huge systems of power and oppression that make it, that make the space for so very few people in those boxes. Right. Mm -hmm. And then we think like, um, you know, I, I apply that to all other things. Like Mm -hmm. everything else has to kind of align with how I think about things within diet culture, structure and rigidity and discipline and hard work. And, um, you know, ignoring like what makes those things accessible to you in the first place and like trying to then like take everything else to the extreme. So yeah, I think just yeah, that's almost think about like, what makes it fun. <laughs> that's almost like the negative of intersectionality there, right? It's mm-hmm. like now where you're bringing all the negative stuff into your world, it blinds you in other places as well, yeah. which is so yeah. interesting. Mm. Yeah. Cool. All right. I'm going to ask you a fun question. I haven't asked my guests in a long time. So get ready. This is fun. If you were stranded on a desert island, this was your last meal. What would it be? Mm -hmm. Um, This answer might change based on a season of life, but the first thing that came to mind, so I'm just going to say it out loud is a breakfast burrito with green chili. I grew up in New Mexico uh, it's not my like culture at all. It's, you know, but the food that is in New Mexico, so good. And everything is drenched in green chili and it's a unique, uh, you know, chili and plant to that area. Uh, and I love it. I love it so much. Yeah. So that's what I would bring with me. (laughs) That's cool. I, I like it. I just love people to hear what's usually on their mind first is really the best. So. Yeah. I also had a breakfast burrito this morning, so that's probably part uh, of it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's really, really good. Yeah. Well, Heather, thank you so much. I really appreciate you being on and some great insights and uh, where can people find you? People can find my work at heatherkaplan.com. It's Kaplan with a C. Uh, I get a lot of K Kaplan things, but <laughs> Heather Kaplan with a C. Um, and then I'm Heather DCRD on Instagram. Yeah. And you're also, again, the podcast is RD Real Talk. Yes. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks. I appreciate Heather and we'll see you soon. Yeah. Sounds great. Thanks, David. Awesome. Thank you, Heather, once again for a fantastic interview. For those listening in, I will have links in the show notes so you can get her information there. Also, I'd like to leave you with some last words here. Remember, my new book, One Small Bite, is coming out. Uh, Pre-sales start next week, March 8th. So if you're listening to this in the present, that'll be March 8th, 2021. I will have actual sales releasing in April. So feel free, go to Amazon and get your sign up for free, or excuse me, for the pre-sale for the book. Also, I want to let you know that this episode was brought to you by our new course, which is called Get Unstuck, Securing Your Relationship with Food. This is a great course that my team has developed to help you get unstuck from diet culture and really start building a curiosity, compassionate approach that helps you commit to something consistent. You love that? I threw in the four C's at the same time. The Get Unstuck course starts in mid-April, so stay tuned. We don't have a date just yet, but you got to sign up soon, so we'll have more information for you when that comes out. 
All right, folks, I want to say a couple last things. If you haven't already, hit follow. Make sure to hit follow, subscribe to this podcast so you get these episodes downloaded to your device automatically. Also, remember, if you get a moment, I would greatly appreciate if you can leave us some stars and a review. Those really help us get that uh, this show out to more people. And yeah, you know, it really does help us because uh, we don't get paid for this. <laughs> Free content for you. And so we greatly appreciate those reviews. I want to lastly sign off by saying thank you to my team that helps me get the show out, of course. Jennifer Baugh, Reagan Perkins, Jenny Langdon. So thank you all. Thank you for the help that you provide. And I just want to say, remember, chop that diet mentality, fuel your body, and nourish your soul. Until next time, ciao. Oh yeah!